Amen. Amen. Well, the last few weeks here at Sharon Heights on Sunday morning, we have been turning our attention to some places in Scripture where Jesus gives us that very familiar command, fear not, fear not. And what I've been trying to show you over the past few weeks is that that command from Jesus is not just, you know, feel-good inspirational advice, but it's actually connected to deeper thinking about who He is and deeper thinking about who God is. And as I've thought about the, the idea of fear over the past few weeks, it's dawned on me just how much fear really is a regular part of our lives. And that's not always a bad thing, is it? In a lot of ways, the right kind of fear is really just the first cousin to common sense. You know what I mean? And, and everywhere you look in, in life, there are things that we do where our lives are shaped by fear. Like if you look around this room right now, you'll see a fire extinguisher hanging on the wall, fire alarms, lighted emergency exits. That's because we have a healthy kind of fear, and we have oriented our building around those kind of fears. How many of you ladies have in your pocketbook right now hand sanitizer? That's right. Bath and Body Works is making a fortune off of you because you're afraid of what all these other people around you have. Are you afraid you're going to get their cooties and you don't want it? And fear like that is all around us. Think about a car seat. Think about a bicycle helmet. Fear shapes many, many things about our lives. You go to Starbucks and there's a little warning on the bottom of your coffee cup that says, Caution, the beverage you are about to enjoy will be hot. That's there because Starbucks is afraid that you are dumb enough to burn yourself on a hot cup of coffee and yet smart enough to hire lawyers to sue them. That's why that's there. Fear is all around us. There is even, get this y'all, there is even, the men of our church know this, there is even a warning label on one of our toilets in the bathroom, isn't there guys? That says, beware of suction. Now, I'm just going to tell y'all, somebody's afraid of something. Like I know that there's a story there, and I do not want to hear it. I promise you. So we, we live very normal, very healthy lives with fear being a very close companion. But the fear that shapes us and controls us isn't always a good or a healthy thing, is it? A lot of times fear makes us make bad decisions really, really quick. And sometimes fear makes us make good decisions really, really slowly. Sometimes fear makes us fight for control of circumstances, even fight for control of other people or run away from people. Fear makes us trust all the wrong people, sometimes distrustful of all the right people. But what would it be like to live totally free of all of those kind of dangerous fears? What would it be like not to be afraid to die? What would it be like not to be afraid of getting sick? What would it be like not to be afraid of the future? What would it be like not to be afraid of people rejecting you? Not to be afraid of going broke? What would it be like to live a life totally free of fear? Some of y'all really would like to know the answer to that, wouldn't you? So, man, just for one day, give me that kind of a life. And you see, maybe even here at church, you see other Christians around you who seem to have that kind of life. And you think, what is it that they have that I don't have? I just tell you, maybe the problem's not that they've got something you don't have. Maybe the problem is you have something they don't have. And what you've got is fear. And fear is keeping you from living an outspoken, open-handed, bold, risk-taking life filled with faith in Jesus. 
Maybe you look at your life today and you think to yourself, man, what would it really be like to do more? You want to do more for Jesus. You want to speak up more. You want to give more. You want to be more open about who you are in Christ. But you don't really know what the hang-up really is. Well, today as we turn to Luke chapter number 12, uh, I want to show you what a fearless life really looks like directly from the words of Jesus himself. And I want to show you this today, hopefully in very positive terms, not in real negative terms. I don't want you to leave here today feeling like, you know, you were just a miserable little coward. I want you to see the kind of life Jesus wants you to live that is not tainted with the fingerprints of fear. And it's Luke chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 8 through 12. And then we're going to read verses 32 through 34. So would you stand with me as we begin in Luke chapter 12 and verse number 8. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 8. Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, look down to verse number 32 of Luke 12. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You can be seated. And I trust the Lord is really going to speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this text. Now in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is giving a sermon that begins with a warning to his disciples not to fall into the trap of religious hypocrisy. And from there, the, the subject of the sermon kind of mutates as it goes. That happens sometimes. And Jesus talks about all kinds of things. From money, he talks about the fear of death. Jesus talks about judgment. even talks about verses we looked at last week, verse number 22. He talks about the very nature of faith itself. And his main point in, in everything that he says, he keeps coming back to this idea that if we really fear God correctly, and if we really fear God first, then every other lesser fear is going to start to melt away. So that if I really do take my sense of joy and my sense of identity and my sense of meaning and my sense of purpose from who I am in Christ and from what God says about me in Jesus, then I'm not necessarily going to be afraid of people rejecting me and people turning their backs on me. I'm not going to live in fear of other people. And on the same token, if I take my sense of joy and purpose and meaning and really security and safety, not from my financial position, but from who Jesus is and what God has promised me, then I'm not going to be afraid of financial disaster because it's the Father's good pleasure to give me the kingdom. And so Jesus is showing us really this one theme throughout all this chapter, and that is that if we fear God, every other fear will disappear. Because all fear is, in effect, misplaced worship. It is assigning something that is not God, God's ability and power and authority in our lives. So Jesus teaches this out of a deep concern for his disciples. Okay? And I want you to pay attention to this very, very carefully. Verse number 1, you see that Jesus starts all of this preaching by turning to his disciples first. He's talking to the men that he is closest to. Verse number 4, he calls them his 
friends. It's awesome, isn't it? Then he affirms them as God's children, God's children in verse number 30 and in verse number 32. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not just preaching to have something to preach, but he's really concerned about his people. He's concerned about his followers. And he's saying, listen, I want you to live a life free of fear. I want you, yes, to have a reverence and an awe for God. And I want that fear of God to drive away every other fear that is in your heart. And I think Jesus would tell us from this text of Scripture, look, I want you to live a life free from fear. I want you to live a life where you're not marked by a a, a terror that somebody somewhere is going to reject you. And you're not living in this absolute horror that you're going to end up with nothing in a bank account or nothing to hold in your hands because your father is going to give you everything that you need. So now, if you know your Bible, you can understand why Jesus would want to teach his disciples about the power of fear. Jesus knew his Bible. I mean, that's obvious. He would, right? The disciples knew their Bibles. And they could, in their mind, run all of those Bible stories from the Old Testament back. And they could remember all of the times that fear had kept people from enjoying what God wanted them to enjoy. Remember when God brought his people out of the the land of Egypt? Two years after they come out of Egypt, they end up at this place called Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to enter into the land God had promised to their ancestors 400 plus years earlier. But they do not go into the promised land. Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid to go forward. They lived by fear and not by faith. And they missed what God had for them. And their kids got to enjoy it. Remember, say, the story of David and Goliath. David comes in as a teenager, takes a slingshot, kills Goliath, and everybody lived happily ever after. But do you remember what was happening before David got there? Do you remember how Goliath was showing up every morning and every night for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's out there cussing God and cussing God's people and making fun of this army, and all of the Israelites are living there in terror. The only reason you know David's name and none of the rest of them's name is because David's the only one that feared God more than he did Goliath. And so Goliath kept terrorizing the people because they were afraid. And you could go through story after story in Scripture and see how fear terrorized and defeated God's people. But we could also go through our lives, could we not? And see, time after time where fear has kept us from being what God wants us to be. You see, Jesus is teaching his disciples here because he knows to be true what we know to be true. And that is, fear never wins a single victory. Why? Because fear will never fight a single battle. Fear will never reach new heights in Jesus. You know why? Because fear stays put. Fear will always keep you from receiving all of the blessings God has for you. And so what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to tell his disciples, you do not have to live that way. He says you really can live a life that is marked by a reverence and an awe for God and not a terror of all these other things that may happen to you. And he's going to show us here in these verses we've read today what that looks like. And he's really just going to show us kind of two virtues that Christians should have and will have if they're living lives that are free of fear. And what's amazing is that each of these virtues, each of these blessings that God wants us to enjoy, they are fears that every believer will struggle with at some point in their journey with the Lord. They're the most common fears that are in this place today. The fear of somebody rejecting us, somebody thinking bad about us, and the fear of financial ruin. The fear of people rejecting us keeps us quiet and keeps us from speaking up about Jesus. And the fear of financial disaster keeps us from giving generously. And is it not true that in this place today there's fear of what other people think that keeps us quiet? There's fear of not having enough that keeps us stingy. Jesus says you do not have to live that way. 
And he says, you can live a fearless life. And for a follower of Jesus, a fearless life looks like an outspoken faith. That's the first virtue that Jesus gives us in this text. In verses 8 through 12, he said, I've come to give you an outspoken faith. I've come to make you outspoken. So early in this sermon, Jesus is warning about the danger of religious hypocrisy. He says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Make sure that what's inside of them does not get inside of you. I did not come to make you hypocrites. But Jesus is also aware that the Pharisees were, were very influential. They were very powerful people culturally. People respected their opinions. People valued their insights. And Jesus knew and the disciples knew that if pushed far enough and pushed hard enough, the Pharisees could create a lot of trouble for the disciples. Maybe even bringing them up on formal charges. Maybe even having them actually executed. And that's what they would go on to do to Jesus. So Jesus does not want his disciples being afraid of the Pharisees. That's what he said in verses 4 and 5. Don't be afraid of those that can kill the body, but fear God who can take your body and soul and cast both of them into hell. And he says here in verse number 8, if you're not afraid of them, then you are free to acknowledge Jesus before men, regardless of what people think about you. Now, the Bible tells you today, Proverbs chapter 29 and verse number 25, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. A snare is a hunter's trap. We don't hunt this way anymore, but we still kind of use the same basic idea. We, we deceive these cruel, defenseless woodland creatures. And what hunters in the time of the Bible would do if they were going to catch a rabbit or something small like that, you know, they would do what Elmer Fudd would do to Bugs Bunny. You know, they'd bend that tree over, make a loop in it and hide it, and then the rabbit would run in there and it'd catch him and sling him up, sling him up in the air. And then the hunter would catch that animal and kill that animal because it was trapped and then eat that animal for dinner. And now we just coat ourselves in dough urine. That's all we do to conceal ourselves. But what the Bible is saying to you about the fear of man is this. It wants you to think about living for other people's approval the way a rabbit or a small animal should think about a hunter's trap. The way a bear should think about a bear trap. So there is a trap that will kill you and eat you alive if you live your life totally for the approval of other people. And Jesus is warning us about that same principle here. That if you live your life totally worried to death that somebody somewhere might think you're awkward or weird or different because you're the creep who talks about Jesus all the time, you are never going to have an outspoken faith where you speak up boldly for who Jesus is. And I hate to tell you all this, but just so you know, there are plenty of people that think you're weird already and it don't have anything to do with Jesus. That's unavoidable. But if we were... If we were to honestly, sincerely look into our hearts today, is it not true that from the time we are old enough to understand all the way to the time our lives are over, we do shape and structure our whole lives based on the fear of what other people think about us, don't we? That's why some of you men had perms in high school. Because that was cool, wasn't it? Acid-washed jeans. That's, that's what you had to have to look rad or gnarly or whatever the buzzword was when you were coming up in high school. And some of you ladies laugh about that and say, yeah, looking back, they really did look like idiots. But look, y'all use enough hairspray to immobilize a small donkey. Because that's what, that's what you had to do to fit in. That's what you had to do to get people to like you. 
And I know some of our teenagers and younger people look back at your parents' prom pictures and you think, first of all, thanks a lot for the hole in the ozone layer. Second of all, you think, who, why did you ever think that that possibly looked cool? But I'm going to tell you what y'all do. Testify. Can I get a witness? Here's what people my age do. We take pictures of ourselves on our phone and put them on Instagram and hide ourselves behind a filter that looks like a cartoon deer so that other people don't think we look as ugly as we think we look. <laughs> then we grow up and we have kids and we're terrified that the other parents are going to judge our parenting because we're giving our baby the regular goldfish cracker snacks instead of the free trade, non-GMO, organic fish-shaped cracker product. We're terrified that people are going to judge us because our price range is potted meat, not prime rib. We are afraid that people are constantly looking down on us because we feel like we always need to belong. We feel like we need to look important. We need to look smart. We need to be educated. We need to be influential. And Jesus says, if you speak up about me faithfully, there's a good chance that you might get kicked out of the cool kids club. But in verse number 8, he says that there's a direct connection between our willingness to acknowledge him in this life and his willingness to acknowledge us when we go to meet with him. So do you see what Jesus is telling us here? That we can, as God's people, live with confidence and assurance that even if the whole world rejects us, he will still own us on the last day. And if we are confident that our Savior will own us when we stand before Him, then we do not need to worry what anybody in the world would ever say about us. Friends, the key to conquering the issues we have with the fear of other people is rooting ourselves deep in the belief that God's approval of us means more than anybody else's approval and that we can read in His Word exactly what He says about us now. And what does God say about us now? Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1 says that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.31 says that if God is for us, who could ever be against us? And until we grow deep in that, we are always going to be so ensnared by the fear of what other people say and think and feel about us that we will never be bold witnesses for Jesus. We will never be outspoken. We will always keep our faith secret and private and it's something that we have on Sundays at church but nowhere else in life. Friends, the reason we don't share the gospel is because we don't believe it deep enough ourselves. Because if we really did believe the gospel down into our hearts and down into our bones and all the way down to our toes, then we would understand at the cross Jesus said we were loved at the cross, Jesus said we were valued. At the cross, Jesus says we are accepted. And that is enough. So friend, please know that there is no security living for the approval of other people. There's none. Because you'll make yourself crazy trying to find it. You'll make yourself nuts trying to keep it if you get it. And you may even just make yourself into somebody you never even wanted it to be. And somebody that God never wanted you to be trying to hold on to it. There is no security living for the approval of other people. But folks, there is security at the cross of Jesus. And that's what he's telling us to understand here. Listen, I will accept you at the last day. If you have enough understanding and faith in the gospel to know that I have, I have accepted you and welcomed you and loved you and you live in the light of that truth, Jesus said on the last day, I will stand for you. In fact, if you look at the text... Jesus gives this title to describe himself in verse 8. The Son of Man 
will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Now, that phrase, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite way of describing Himself. It's His favorite title to give Himself. And you kind of look at that and read it and you think, yeah, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, I'm a guy whose dad was a guy. I'm a son of man too. What's, what's the big deal about that? But it's actually connected to this ancient passage of Scripture in the book of Daniel where Daniel has this prophetic vision. Here's what he sees. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse number 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse number 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And you say, that, that doesn't end the way I think about God. Well, I would say Daniel got it right, and we didn't. But second of all, Daniel's trying to describe things that we don't have language to describe, okay? A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. Then verse 13 of Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given by the Ancient of Days dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So get this image that, Daniel's, that Daniel has in your mind. This is God sitting on a throne made of fire. And this person called the Son of Man approaches that throne. And the Bible says the books, as it were, of God's judgment are opened. And this Son of Man approaches and there's nothing in Him to judge. There's nothing in Him to condemn. And so God gives Him a kingdom that will never perish. A kingdom that will never pass away and never be destroyed and never be overthrown. Jesus says, I am that Son of Man. And Jesus says, if you acknowledge me with the way you live in this life as a bold, outspoken follower of me, then that day, Jesus said, all of heaven will give its attention to me and I will give my attention to you. This day, when God's on the throne of fire thing, when I receive the fullness of the kingdom, Jesus says, that day, I will know you and acknowledge you before all the angels of heaven. So if... The Son of Man who's going to receive all the kingdoms of this world from His Father. If He knows me, and if He cares for me, and if He's going to include me in this last day throwing a fire stuff, why in the world are we so worried about what anybody else thinks about us today? Now, Jesus shifts a little bit from there in verse number 10, and He gives this warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it seems kind of unusual, and it seems kind of out of place. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You may have heard that preached and called the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. Maybe you're even worried that you've committed that sin and you think, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, you have to do a little bit digging, I think, to figure out why Jesus said this here. But back in Luke chapter 11, the previous chapter, and verse number 15, Jesus had been casting out demons. The Pharisees that Jesus is talking about in Luke 12, they said that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. Do you remember that story? Okay, I believe that that is the sin Jesus is talking about here. That ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus to demonic powers, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, in response to that rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees, at the end of Luke chapter 11, Jesus pronounces all this judgment on the Pharisees. He starts pronouncing these woes to the Pharisees. Here's one of them right towards the end. It's Luke chapter 11, verses 47 through 51. Luke eleven forty-seven. 47. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, 
For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, this is key, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So the Pharisees were very self-righteous, religious, moral people. And they wanted to identify with the lineage of faithful prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel. Okay? You with me so far? I'm glad. Three of you are, and we're going to get to the end of it, I promise. The rest of y'all just hang tight. We'll get back to something that makes sense. The Pharisees wanted to represent that faithful lineage of prophets that God had sent. Jesus says, you're not like those prophets that God had sent. You're just like your fathers, your ancestors, who persecuted and killed all of those prophets, which was true. But Jesus says that the wisdom of God had said that God would send more prophets and more apostles to preach truth, and the Pharisees would reject them too. Those prophets and apostles that Jesus is talking about are the disciples that Jesus is talking to. And what he's doing is he's tying all of this together, and he's saying to the disciples and to the Pharisees that the engine that drives the hatred the Pharisees have for Jesus and his disciples is their continual rejection of the revelation of who Christ is through the work of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, he's saying to the disciples, you are the God-sent messengers who will preach truth in my name. But he's also saying, those guys are going to hate you because they hate me and they hate my truth. But Jesus also is saying here this, I think, to the disciples and to the Pharisees. He's saying, you should not fear what the Pharisees can do to you. That's what he says in verse 4. Do not fear the rejection of the Pharisees. But he says to the Pharisees, you should fear the ultimate rejection of God when you have turned your back time and again on the preaching of the truth, the declaration of the truth. And Jesus says, if you keep doing that, if you resist the Spirit of God, who's proclaiming my name, there is no other hope of salvation for you. So I would just say this before we move on. That for those of us that are in Christ, there's no need for us to fear what other people might think. But if you are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've never put your faith in Christ, you have much to be afraid of. And it could be that you have worked your whole life to craft this image where people respect you, people love you, or people fear you. Maybe they fear how much they love you. I don't know. But people, you've worked really, really hard to get people to like you. And you think that if you follow Jesus, all of that's going to be ruined. And every bit of that's going to be over. Friend, understand that if you reject the witness of the Spirit in Christ about who He is and what He's come to do, there is no other hope of salvation for you. There is no other way for you than this Jesus preached in this book testified by this Spirit who came into this world to take your sins on His cross. There is no other hope for you. And Jesus wants you to feel the weight of that, that if you reject that, there's nothing but unforgiveness. So the Pharisees would reject the witness of the Spirit. But the disciples had the witness of the Spirit in them working out through them. And He says this, verse 11. When they, the Pharisees, bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you want to say, what you ought to say. So Jesus says to the disciples, look, um, by the way, there's a chance that following me you may end up in prison, but don't worry about that. 
That's a loose paraphrase of what he says. And you, th- you know the disciples were thinking, wait a minute, can we go back to that prison business? Let me, let's clarify, clarify that just a little bit. But Jesus is making the same point. He's saying that the Spirit of God will be with you in those moments to give you what you need to say. Now, let me just park here for one minute and run a rabbit, all right? That promise that Jesus makes in verses 11 and 12, that is a specific promise for specific people in a specific scenario. This is not a, a, a kind of a carte blanche promise to every lazy Sunday school teacher or preacher. All right, who says, hey, the Holy Spirit will give me in the very hour the words I need to say. No, if that's the approach you take to preaching and teaching God's Word, then you're going to be a terrible Sunday school teacher that nobody ever wants to come hear. Amen. And the people that hear you are going to feel like they are being persecuted. What he's saying is that when we face, as believers, we face persecution. We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to become defensive. We trust the Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus through us in the right way and in the right time. Now, Even though that's a very specific promise, it is built on a very general principle. And the general principle is that God has given us the person and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we are now bold, outspoken witnesses for Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 20 and verse number 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are a sent people. And the same Holy Spirit who conceived Jesus in the womb of his mother, the Virgin Mary, has put us into this world to point people to him. That is an amazing fact, isn't it? And what is the Holy Spirit doing to make us these bold, effective witnesses? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16 at the Last Supper. When the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is the Spirit of God doing in me to make me speak up for Jesus? You know what he's doing? He's talking to you about Jesus. That's what he's doing. And as he tells you about the cross that paid for your sin, as he reminds you of his love for you, as he talks about his work on your behalf, as he assures you that you are loved and accepted by your heavenly Father, as he is showing you that his eternal life is now yours, the gospel that you hear from the Holy Spirit shapes the way that you share it. So Jesus says the last thing his people should be are a defensive people who are constantly trying to prove how great they are, trying to prove how right they are, trying to prove how smart they are, But they are people who are trusting in Christ and His work. And because of that, they're not worried about themselves. They're not anxious and they're not afraid. But they're making much of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do this? You say, well, how can I live boldly and and be open for Jesus in this world? Here are two ways that you can do it. Right here through some things happening at Sharon Heights Baptist Church. On Sunday nights, we're going to start tonight doing some very hands-on practical evangelism training to teach you and equip you how to share the gospel. So be here tonight at 6 o'clock, and you'll learn how to be practically outspoken for Jesus in the place where you work, the place where you live, how to turn everyday conversations into ordinary conversations. Also, second, how many of you were here last Sunday night and filled out a card like this? I've got, I don't know, something like, some of y'all just don't even remember because it's been a week. But I've got like a hundred of these in my office of names that people said, this is the one person, the one person that I want God to use me to pray for, the one person that I want God to use me to reach between now and Easter. 
And if you weren't here last Sunday night for whatever reason, right now I know that there's somebody in your heart, somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood that you look around and you think, I would love for that person to come and worship with me. What I want you to do is we have an invitation in just a few moments. I'm going to put these on the communion table. Come get one of these. Write that name down and just leave it there on the communion table or bring it back. And do your best to pray for that person every day. And pray that God would give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And if nothing else, go to them before Easter and say, Listen, on Easter, I want you to come be in church with me. Who's your one? Everybody has at least one person they would like to see Jesus change their life. Who is that person? It's an opportunity for you to be bold and outspoken. But Jesus says that not only should we have an outspoken faith, but he also says we should have an open-handed faith. An open-handed faith. He gives this great promise, very underrated promise in chapter 32, or chapter 12, verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And man, we had a good time talking about that last Sunday, didn't we? Man, just what an awesome promise that God is pleased to give us the kingdom. And one of the very next words Jesus has says, sell your possessions. So now, wait a minute, Lord. I mean, this is, this is going a little too fast. For us here, right? What Jesus has been teaching in the second half of Luke chapter 12 is he's been teaching about the fear of financial ruin. Don't be anxious for the things you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Consider the ravens. They don't do any of that. Consider the lilies. They don't toil or spin. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Live in confident faith that your father knows what you have need of. He's going to take care of you. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell everything you have and give it to the needy. His logic makes a lot of sense. And we know today that the Bible calls us to be a generous people, right? Let me back up just a minute. This is a Bible, all right? This tells you things about God and about you and what He wants you to know for your life. And one of the things God wants you to know for your life is Acts chapter 20 and verse number 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now... We know that that verse is true, but they don't feel true, does it? It's better to get than to give. Jesus, surely you know this. We can't sell all of our possessions and give to the needy because then we'll be the needy. But Jesus said, no, you won't because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What's he saying in these verses of Scripture? Jesus is saying here that your Father has committed to giving you everything that He has and everything that He is so that if you give away everything in His name, you're not going to be any poorer for it. So is there really any possible way that God's people could ever be eternally broke? No. I mean, could I potentially just liquidate everything I have and sell everything and give it all away to missions or missionaries or to people that are in poverty and give everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. And could I be destitute? Sure, that could happen, right? That could happen. But if you stretch it out a hundred years from now, have I lost anything? No, because everything that is God's will be mine. That's what the writer of the Psalms was writing about in Psalm 37, 25. He said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Now notice, Psalm chapter 37 verse number 26 does not say that his children receive a blessing, does it? Now it would be true if it did say that. But it says his children become a blessing. That they have been so blessed with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
that now they are able to bless others with the way they live, in particular with the way that they give. Romans chapter 8 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. God Himself is your eternal inheritance. And you really don't think you can make it if you give generously and freely? There's a huge disconnect in our thinking, isn't there? And so, what I want to tell you tonight, just today as we finish up, is just that the Bible does command you and compel you and invite you to live a generous, open-handed, sacrificial life where you give to bless others. But I want you to hear me now. Because I know some of y'all have heard that from preachers your whole life. You're thinking, every time I come to church, you're asking for money for something. The way the Bible invites you and commands you to give is not the same way that most people and preachers invite you and command you to give. Because what we do is we invite you to give based upon fears you have. We want you to give because you're supposed to be afraid of what happens if you don't give. Alright? And y'all know it's true, right? You've heard things like, hey, these people around here, these saints of God have been giving to Sharon Heights for 60 years. You don't want the church closed down on your watch, do you? I mean, the, the preacher's got kids to feed. Y'all need to give, right? So what are we doing? We're playing upon your fear, saying, you better give or else. That is not how the Bible motivates you to give. The Bible motivates you to give out of a fearless heart. 2 Corinthians 8 9, in the middle of two chapters, three chapters, that are all about receiving an offering. Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you, by His poverty, might become rich. God wants you to give out of an understanding that you are loaded in Jesus. That you have Him and you have everything. And now you're invited to give with the same generous and gracious heart that He has. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to do what? To give. That we serve a giving God who in His grace and generosity has given everything to us. And so now we can give everything away freely. Otherwise, Jesus said, we're just investing in cars that are going to break down and houses that are going to need repairs and junk that's going to fall apart and depreciate in value. Why don't we invest in eternity where no, he would say another place, where no thief could break in and destroy and no moth and rust could come in and depreciate. So I know some of you maybe are younger uh, this season of life and you look at older believers and it seems like they give so generously and so graciously and you think, you know, I wish I could do that and maybe one day when I'm a little bit more secure and a little more stable, then I'll be able to do that. And they've lived all these years, got all their bills paid off, and they're able to give more now. And that may be true in some cases. But I would also tell you that the reason many of these older believers are able to give is because they have understood that they would never outgive God. Now, I want you to hang on with me for a minute. Because that phrase, you'll never outgive God, that's a cliche that we use in church all the time. And I know that when I say that, what you think I just said is that if I give a hundred, God's gonna give me a thousand. Like this is a giant Ponzi scheme where God's gonna, you know, we're bribing God to make us rich through our tithes and offerings. So listen to what I'm about to tell you today. You will never outgive God. Why? Because He has already given you more than you could ever give. 
You're not giving to get wealthy from Him. You're giving because you are wealthy in Him. That's what we as believers need to understand today. That Jesus is calling us to respond and give out of the wealth that is ours in Christ. You say, well, that's all fine and good. But that, when I go to H&R Block to pay my taxes, that wealth doesn't compute there. Exactly right. It's called living by faith. And Jesus wants you to live as if that really is more real than all this. And to give generously because of that. God has already given you everything. So give freely. Now some of you I know are afraid because the fear of money that Jesus preaches about here. That's a real fear. It's a paralyzing fear. Because money seems to promise so much security. And it seems to promise so much identity. And it seems to promise so much happiness. And you feel strapped already. But I would just say to you today that if you really do struggle with, with fear in giving, one of the best ways you could conquer that fear really is to give anyway. It really is. And watch God take care of you and watch God bless you. And there te- there's, I know in this place there's testimony after testimony after testimony of people who were afraid to give, but they gave in faith. They might not even been real happy about it, but they gave in faith and God blessed them and God took care of them. So fight your fear by trusting the promises of God. Here's a challenge I would lay out to you today if you're struggling with this. We, we preach and, and promote tithes and offerings. We believe in that. We do that. I hope you do that, but some of you don't. Here's what I would just encourage you to do if you want to stretch your faith. Take whatever you regularly give and increase it by 10%. So I know maybe some of y'all are giving like three bucks a week. Next week, by faith, step out and be bold and give 330. And see what God does in your life. And see if you can't just maybe make it. That if he can't cover the difference between 30 cents. And I promise you, if he can't do that, he's probably not worth serving anyway. Take it where you are right now and say, Lord, I want to dedicate myself to give 10% more in faith so that I can give generously to the needy. Jesus calls us to give to the needy. We have a missions team that's going to Guatemala the end of the month, next month. There are financial needs that come along with that. You can't just get in the car and drive it. Well, you could, I guess, but you know, you'd like to get there in less than two weeks. And it takes money to do that, to do the work that the Lord is doing in this world. So next Sunday night, we are going to have a singing. Music for Missions will be here next Sunday night. So come, prepared to give. A couple weeks after that, we're going to have a bake sale, which is always a huge hit here. Come, prepared to give. If you have maybe a certain amount on your heart, and you'd like to donate it to one of our individuals that maybe is having a little bit more difficult time coming up with the funds, you could see me, you could see Brother David Bensko, and we could position that where it needs to go. There are opportunities for you to give today. In the way that Jesus commands you to. Not to be afraid, but to be open-handed. So I wish today there was some way for us to see into one another's hearts. Well, no, actually, I take that back. I don't want that to happen. That would be the worst thing that could ever happen. (laughs) But if that did happen, I wonder today, honestly, how many of us have lived our whole lives in fear of what other people think about us? And it stops us from really owning Jesus boldly, frequently, and publicly. And how many of us really are terrified that financially we're not going to make it? I can't give everything I've got away. Because I got it and I need it. And maybe today God has challenged you about those fears in your life. And shown you that Jesus really doesn't want you to live that way. He wants you to live by faith. To know that He loves you and accepts you and will take care of you. So you can speak up for Him. 
And so that you can share what God has given you to bless other people. As our musicians come and as we stand together, my invitation is this. If you see in your heart a real need to be more outspoken for Jesus. If you have somebody in your heart and on your mind, you say, there's somebody I want desperately to come and to worship and to be with us on Easter. Would you come get one of these cards? We're going to pray for them and do our best to pray that God speaks to their heart. Some of you, God has not so much spoken to your heart today, but He's spoken to your pocketbook. And you need to be obedient. Let me take just a second and pray for you, then we'll sing. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful for how Your Word works in our lives, how it assures us and comforts us and makes these incredible sweeping promises to us. Then it challenges us to live in light of those promises. God, there are people today that need to do that. Maybe even the majority of people here today need to do that. And Lord, I pray that You'd give them grace to take those first steps of faith and to live in an open-handed and an outspoken way. Do that now in us, I pray, and I ask it in Jesus' name. And amen.